For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the story of a father and daughter from Guatemala who were separated and reunited while seeking asylum in the United States. An update on the poaching of a male jaguar that had been sighted in the Huachuca Mountains. And meet a Tucson girl who is a national champion at reading and writing with Braille. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A Guatemalan father and his 17-year-old daughter were separated at the Nogales port of entry. He was sent to Phoenix while she was being held in Tucson. 57-year-old Guermo Tomas was less than an hour from being deported, with the real possibility of never seeing his daughter again. AZPM border reporter Nancy Montoya has been following the family's story. We met 17-year-old Yesenia Tomas, affectionately known to her family as Jesse, and her 57-year-old father, Guillermo Tomas, at Tucson's Casa Elita. That's a type of Catholic halfway house for families awaiting asylum hearings. Casa Elitas is run in great part by volunteers. Two of them are the husband and wife team of Poncho Chavez and his wife, Rebecca Cartes. It's so exciting to see them because they have gone through so much to get here. A lot of people die on the way. A lot of women are raped. And, and we know that the ones that make it here, they already have won, you know, another war. <laughs> Sitting in safety at Casa Elitas, 17-year-old Jessie Tomas is laughing and talking about her future. But just 24 hours earlier, she says, her world turned pitch black. Jesse says, they told me we are going to separate you from your father. I didn't know where he was. I had no idea. Her father, Guillermo Tomas, was told that he was being deported back to Guatemala. He said, I told them if I was going to be returned to my country, I have to take her with me. They said, you can't. She is going to stay. Guillermo says he felt as if his daughter, Jessie, was being kidnapped, something the gangs in Guatemala City had threatened to do. They also had threatened to rape and murder Jessie if she refused to join as a type of sex slave to gang members. The family was in a panic. The Tomas family comes from a remote village in Guatemala. Her father says Jessie was so advanced as a student that at age 15 she was sent to live with friends in the capital city to study at the university. When it became too dangerous to live in the city, she was forced to leave the university and go back to her remote village. Her dreams of being a doctor vanished. I wanted to keep studying to be a doctor, she says. 
Now, teenage boys and girls appear to be the most at risk in Guatemala. Boys are recruited into gangs, and the girls are often threatened with rape if the family fails to pay gang members high fees. It is extortion, says Guillermo, or a war tax. If you have a nice house, you pay a tax. He tells me if you have a car, you must pay a tax to the gangs. If you have a little store, you have to pay a tax to the gangs. He says you are just paying for your life, and if you don't, they kill you. The family sold most of their valuables and scraped together enough money to buy bus tickets. The trip was much too dangerous for Jessie to go alone, and her mother had two young boys to care for. So father and daughter would make the dangerous journey north to the U.S. It took two weeks. The guide they paid left them at a fence opening near Sonoida. He told them that because Jesse was a minor, their crossing would be legal, and they could ask a Border Patrol agent for asylum. Their guide then instructed them to cross the fence and just wait. And so they did. Half an hour later, a Border Patrol agent picked them up. They said he was kind and respectful. Guillermo told him, we are asking for asylum. Guillermo says he was shocked when the agent asked, who told you you could cross with a minor and get asylum in this country? The agent said, that is not true. Guillermo says the agent told him Donald Trump wants to deport everyone back to their countries. And with that, Guillermo and his daughter were taken to the Nogales port of entry for processing. Now, Casa Elitas volunteer Rebecca Carta says many Central American immigrants have been given misleading word-of-mouth information. A lot of them don't really, don't even imagine that this is only the beginning. Many of them think, oh, we're here and we're staying. And we know very much that many of them get deported. In fact, now more than ever. At an initial interview, Guillermo said he was told that he would be immediately deported and that they would be separated that day. For the next three days, Guillermo and his daughter Jessie say they were terrified, mostly of the unknown. Guillermo said he was so confused and now was separated from Jesse. He didn't even get a chance, he says, to say goodbye or to explain to his daughter what was happening. And Jessie? She says she too had no idea where her father was going. Nothing, she says. Guillermo was sent to Phoenix, Jessie to Tucson. But an hour before he was to board a plane and be deported back to Guatemala, word came that under mounting national pressure from immigration advocates and elected officials on both sides of the aisle, the president had signed a second executive order saying that separations were to stop and all families like Guillermo and his daughter who were still in Border Patrol custody needed to be reunited. Mire, es un Guillermo says he was placed on an ankle bracelet and he and Jesse were reunited, then dropped off by Immigration and Custom Enforcement at Casa Elitas. They were together again, and the volunteers were there to help them surmount the next hurdle, getting to Florida, 
where they have friends and an asylum court date on July 3rd. At Casa Elitas, they were able to shower, get fresh clothes, eat, and for the first time in almost three weeks, get a good night's sleep. The next day, volunteers help them to make bus arrangements to get to Florida, and Rebecca and her husband Poncho would meet them at the bus station and explain what would happen next. We are many, many volunteers. Yeah. Many, many. How many volunteers? Would I don't know, but at some point there were hundred or more, and some of them cook and bring food to the casalitas. Some of them uh, come in the morning, some in the afternoon, some sleep during the night there. Poncho's wife, Rebecca, says meeting Jesse and her father and hearing their story has convinced them that more than ever, Tucson volunteers will continue to do their part because Central American parents are risking it all to get their children, especially teenagers, to safety. So, you know, they have to save them. They have to save them. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. You can find all of Nancy Montoya's reporting on immigration and border policy online at news.azpm.org. Behind tigers and lions, the third largest cat on planet Earth is the jaguar. In December of 2016, a U of A trail camera in the Huachuca Mountains captured an image of a previously unrecorded male jaguar on the prowl. Sightings of these endangered big cats are rare north of the U.S.-Mexico border. Only seven have been confirmed in the last 20 years. Because of that scarcity, and the fact that each bears its own individual pattern of spots, they're given names to help study their movements. Students at Hiaki High School in Tucson named him Yooko, the Yaki word for jaguar. Yooko was last seen by the Huachuca Trail Cam in March of last year, until a disturbing photo of a jaguar pelt surfaced earlier this month. I asked Mark Hart from Arizona Game and Fish and Randy Seraglio, a conservation advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity, to tell us what we know about this animal's mysterious life and tragic death. Randy Seraglio begins. Honestly, it was sent to me by Tony Davis from the Arizona Daily Star, and uh, he wanted some, you know, second opinions and third opinions on whether the spot pattern matched. So I looked at, you know, a photo of live Yooko, and I looked at the photo of the pelt, and didn't take long to match up the, the rosettes and, and get that sinking feeling. Mark, what can you say about the reaction at Game and Fish to the photo? Disappointment and concern. Uh, the photo came to us because we're part of the process by which a new or an existing individual is identified. So we did a photo analysis. We got the photo from Fish and Wildlife Service. We had six people look at it. Unless there's an identical twin out there, that's probably the jaguar from the Wachukas. 
I've heard estimates of about 500 miles maybe for the range of these males in terms of the, the trips that they take. And I understand that they've also been regularly sighted in certain places on trail cams, indicating that they have a kind of semi-regular pattern that they follow. Male jaguars will establish territories, as will females. Um, you know, when when you're a male jaguar and you're working in the very edge of the range, the very northern edge of the range, there's a lot of great places you can go, you know, without a lot of competition. And, uh, you know, that's one reason why they wander so far. And, of course, they're looking for females. You know, at a certain part of their life, they're going to reach that biological prime and they're going to want to do their duty and, and find a female. And they will travel incredible distances to do that. Do we have any evidence that there might be a female living on this side of the border being part of the southern Arizona ecosystem? There's no evidence that we have females in the United States uh, that we know of. There's no telling where the nearest female to the border is. Um, some biologists that I have spoken with uh, believe that might not be too far away, which is why we're getting males popping up more frequently here in the U.S. And if you think about it, you know, somewhere is Yooko's mother, El Jefe's mother, they wandered off as young, vulnerable jaguars to find a territory of their own. Wherever those females are, those cats can still get back there. They're still part of that population, and we need to maintain these movement corridors so they can go back and forth and still you know, participate in that breeding population. Well, Randy's right about the corridors of movement. If, for example, the jaguar was killed in Mexico, that's evidence that a jaguar that had crossed into the United States returned to Mexico. It's been our position that their presence here is somewhat transient, and that would establish it. If there was evidence that there was a, a female on our side of the border, would that cause any change in the way that uh, jaguars are dealt with? That possibly could, but it's above my pay grade. It's really a policy decision for the Arizona Game and Fish Commission. Okay. But we're on record as not believing this region is critical to the long-term survival of the species. We believe conservation efforts should be focused in Mexico. And that's largely because there hasn't been a confirmed female in Arizona since 63. Randy, your reaction to that? Yeah, this is one place that uh, Mark and I disagree, of course. Um, you know, federal judges and, and the federal government are clearly establishing protected habitat for the, the jaguar in the United States, 764,000 acres in southern Arizona and New Mexico. And, you know, there's a reason for that. It, it is critical to their recovery. And the key is for a species to recover from endangered and threatened status, they have to be able to not only increase their numbers, but increase the number of places that they're found on the landscape. And there are millions of acres of quality habitat for jaguars north of the U.S.-Mexico border. It was mapped many years ago by uh, you know, a collaborative team of people from agencies and, and geos alike. That habitat must be protected and made available to jaguars in order for their numbers to recover. That northern population is very small and very vulnerable, and uh, you know they need to be able to expand into these places and find safe places to live, especially when they're under poaching pressure. Mark, any response? Well, us thinking that the region is not critical to the long-term survival of the species is our opinion. What really matters is what the federal government thinks, and Randy's right, critical habitat has been designated. Looking at the photograph of the pelt, um, is there any indication of whether this was done as a trophy or was it intended for sale? Do you have any idea where the pelt might end up? Boy, it's really hard to say. Based on the condition of the pelt, it does not look like someone who's professionally trading or they would have done a better job. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that in you know we're speculating with Yooko, but in general, the vast majority of jaguars get killed due to conflicts with livestock producers. You know, jaguars eat a, a few cows, and then the rancher wants to go out and kill whatever animal it is that's eating their cows. And you know, I mean, sometimes they put out poison, sometimes they use dogs, but you know, they won't know until they catch that animal what it is. Uh, so it might be a mountain lion, but it might be a jaguar. And that's uh, really one of the primary reasons that the jaguar population is suppressed. Although I'd be reluctant to generalize about ranchers because there are ranchers on both sides of the border who support jaguar conservation efforts. But it is true, there are some in the ranching community who are ardently anti-jaguar. I would guess if a rancher did have a conflict with a jaguar and it even made a kill, that that would have been news, that people would be talking about that, whether it was make it to a Mexican newspaper or something, people would still, there would still be word. I'm not sure about that. Um, Cases of poaching typically occur in remote areas with few, if any, witnesses. It's not a growing problem for Arizona game and fish in this state, but it is an ongoing problem, and they're tough cases to make. We handle about 500 a year. Uh, Is there an investigation going on into this? Are either of you aware of an investigation? The question is where to start, and you'd really have to talk to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because they're lead on that. Uh, It is a violation of state law uh, to illegally take a jaguar, and we would launch an investigation. But at this point, all we have is a photo and a newspaper article, and that's not much to go on. I will add that it is illegal to kill a jaguar in Mexico as well, but it's practically unheard of that such things get investigated or let alone punished in, in any way, um, in any significant way. So that's unfortunate. But, you know, going forward, the more important thing is to prevent these conflicts before they happen, to reduce these conflicts between livestock and, and jaguars. And there's some great programs in Mexico where ranchers agree not to kill uh, wildcats, including jaguars, in exchange for allowing uh, camera monitoring on their ranches. And then they receive monetary awards for every wild cat that shows up on their property. And then before long, the jaguar becomes worth more alive than dead. Uh, And this program is working in the core of the northern jaguar population. Uh, It is reducing poaching. So it's a very exciting program that needs to be expanded, I think, throughout Sonora. Are there any similar programs that you're aware of on this side of the border, Mark? Not exactly like the trail camera project that Randy is describing. One ranching group that has distinguished itself in this area is the Malapai Borderlands Group out of Douglas. Um, Not only do they have ties to jaguar conservation in Mexico, but they've established a fund so that if a rancher loses stock to a jaguar, they can be compensated. Uh, One thing I would add is that this Saturday, June 30th at 6.30, uh, there will be a memorial for Yooko, celebration of his life, Mm -hmm. a memorial of his death. So that's at Borderlands Brewery. 119 East Tool in downtown Tucson. Come on down, there'll be Jaguar shirts and stickers and art and all kinds of good stuff and lots of people who like Jaguars. My guests were Randy Seraglio, Southwest Conservation Advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity, and Mark Hart, a spokesman for Arizona Game and Fish. Randy Johnson, Jenny Finch, and Steve Kerr are all examples of Arizonans who represented our state in national contests and stood tall as champions. Now we can add Sierra Peterson to the list. Sierra is a 12-year-old who lives in Tucson. Earlier this month, she traveled to the University of Southern California 
to compete against other blind and visually impaired kids from the U.S. and Canada. The National Braille Challenge is a two-day series of academic contests based around Braille literacy and translation. Sierra placed second in the sophomore division, but it isn't the first time that she's competed or won. Sierra and her 15-year-old sister Kaylee, plus their mom Kiana, will tell us about the trip, starting with Sierra's best event. Probably the reading comprehension, because I have to do that stuff all the time in school. So is that where they give you some material that you have not read before and ask you to read it and maybe answer questions about it? Yeah, that's basically what it is. I remember they had one where it was like about a blind person. People kept telling the narrator that uh, things were over there, but she didn't really know where that was. So she was trying to figure that out. That is kind of, yeah, that's kind of vague. Yeah. Yeah. What is the most challenging part of the competition for you? Charts and graphs, because I'm not that good with reading like pie charts and things like that. We don't do a whole lot of that stuff in school. And a lot of charts just tend to confuse me. And also speed and accuracy is kind of hard because I have trouble trying to listen to the audio file and type everything. And usually I end up having to retype a lot of stuff and pause the um, audio file to catch up. How many keys are on a Braille typing machine? Generally, there's eight. Two of them are just backspace and enter, and then the other six are, like, for typing the letters and stuff. With one character in Braille, is it six dots in a rectangle that makes up that letter? Can you tell us the position of the dots on a certain letter, like, let's say, C, the first letter of your name? Yeah, C would be, like, the dot one and the dot four together, which probably sounds really confusing, but it's actually not. Um, if a lot of kids were going to a competition and they're gathered together from all different places in the country, people are going to be kind of sizing up the competition, you know, yeah. looking around the room thinking, oh, you know, I can take her or that guy's going to be really tough or whatever. Yeah. How does that transfer over to the Braille challenge? Because I just wonder, like, how much do you get to socialize and how much do you get to know or size up the kids from other places in the country that you're going to be competing with? They definitely have a bunch of time for, like, socializing. Like, during lunch, they had a welcome reception this year. And you can get to know your competitors and stuff during that time. And also they have, like, an opening ceremony where there's a little bit of socializing usually. It's kind of the same as having, like, a competition of sighted people. Some people are really fiercely competitive. (laughs) Yeah. How do you rate on that scale? Um... I'm also pretty competitive. Kiana, as Sierra's mother, what can you tell us about how competitive she is? She's extremely competitive all <laughs> on her own. This is a girl that gets really disappointed if there's a B on the report card. And she has the privilege of going to public school in the Vail School District. And I think that's part of what makes her so successful at Braille. That is the only thing that they accommodate her in is making sure she has braille materials all of her work is right along with her peers doing what they do no adaptations except for the braille so she's right up there and if there's a b on that report card she thinks it's come to an end (laughs) (laughs) do you have any card or board games that you like to play around the house and does that competitiveness come out at home that kind of depends i don't know yeah maybe your sister might have an opinion on that 
Well, we used to play a lot of go fish when we were really little. Yeah. And she would get mad at me because <laughs> I would always win. <laughs> yeah. And we have started playing like Monopoly together because I know how to play that now. Mm-hmm. And she hates it. <laughs> no, that's not exactly true. <laughs> you probably like it when you win. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> many, many hours later. It's still fun, though, to like... Just to play it. I can't stand a messy Monopoly board. <laughs> well, I have to say I'm kind of a messy person. I just kind of throw my stuff everywhere and just be like, oh, I'll pick it up later. And then the next day I'm like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. And I just keep putting it off and forgetting. When you can't see, isn't that sometimes hazardous? Like, what if you trip over the shoes you left in the yeah. middle? <laughs> or you can't find your shoes. That is a common problem that we mm-hmm. have. Where is my yeah. is the beginning of many <laughs> sentences in the house. Yeah. And we're trying to accommodate by if you put it in the same place every time, mm-hmm. you will find it. Generally, it's either my iPhone, my headphones, or my shoes that I lose. And usually they're in really, like, obvious places. So going back to the competition for a moment, Kaylee, I'd like you to tell us, as the older sister, do you feel like you have any special responsibilities when you travel to some place like the, the Braille Challenge? I feel like I have to let her be independent because, like, I automatically want to just, like, take her and, like, shelter her and not let anybody else (laughs) do anything to hurt her or whatever. But she needs, like, healthy competition. And I use it as, like, an opportunity to be with her because, like, it gets hard because she's in middle school and I'm in high school. Mm -hmm. So I just try to focus on truly, like, being with her and like letting her have the full experience instead of like getting jealous or something so would you say that you've always felt protective of her yeah she likes the competition but i'm like nobody talk to her nobody (laughs) say anything mean so yeah (laughs) which nobody usually says anything mean but i just get scared (laughs) i don't normally talk to a whole lot of people except for Um, five of my friends went this year and I tried to talk to them as much as I could because I only see them once a year. Kiana, I'd like to ask you about your daughter's personalities. We were talking a little bit to Kaylee about being protective sometimes. We know that Sierra can be competitive sometimes. Tell us a little bit more about your daughters and what makes them different and what makes them alike. Kaylee's a little bit more upbeat. Sierra's kind of like my doom and gloom. <laughs> Everything is out to get her, you know, and it sh- just shouldn't be that way. Kaylee's really easygoing, and if it is up for debate in any way, shape, or form, Sierra's right on it. I mean, everything is for negotiation. There's no backing down whatsoever. And um, But they're fantastic that they're both separate that way, and they have wonderful similarities as far as their hearts they have beautiful hearts and the way that they are compassionate towards people and the way they are with each other i'm just really proud of them thanks to sierra peterson her sister kaylee and their mom kiana for coming to the studio to share some of their story with us thank you for listening to arizona spotlight You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The executive producer of this show since its inception in 2005 has been Peter Michaels. This week he's retiring from AZPM after an amazing career in broadcasting that included long stints at both NBC and NPR. Many here will miss him for his leadership and friendship. 
I'll remember him as my mentor and the guy who gave me the chance to do my very first interview. Good luck, Pete. No one can ever take your place. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.